In my first pastorate, I preached robed every Sunday. And there's a lot that can help with that. You don't have to worry about your outfit. You just put it on, and it's going to be covered in a robe. And this morning, I was fretting about matching this and that and the other, and then suddenly dawned on me, I'm going to have a robe on. It doesn't matter. And so uh, now you're wondering what I got on underneath the robe, aren't you? John 13 is our assignment this morning. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day and for the testimony that we have heard. Lord, we really, we really heard two testimonies. We heard Lynette's testimony but we saw Caleb's. And Lord, we are thankful for your movement in their lives. Father, as we come to study your word now, we pray that you would just guide us in our understandings, that we would, Lord, know what you're trying to say to us, and that, Lord, we would... We would search after it and, and seize it and make it our own today. Because again, Lord, we really want to hear from you. Lord, give me the words that are needed for those gathered here as we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we begin a new sermon series that will carry us all the way to Advent following John chapters 13 through 16. Certainly these last discourses of Jesus with his disciples are well known, but I would invite you to approach them differently than you might normally. These chapters, which take place in the last hours before Jesus ascends Calvary, I believe can be considered as a war council. Here the great commander, Jesus Christ, assembles his most trusted lieutenants on the eve of battle to go through the strategy for going forward clearly and unequivocally one last time before he sends them out to fight. Now, what events have led to this point of battle? Well, certainly we can say that this battle was first engaged way, way long ago in the garden when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and humanity fell. It, though, has intensified in the last couple of years leading into our text as Jesus has performed miracles all across Judea and has preached. He has preached with such authority and with such conviction that he has raised the ire on more than one occasion of the religious authorities. And two chapters earlier from our text this morning, he has done a great miracle. 
in raising Lazarus from the dead. And that act has proven to be the last straw for these officials. They must act, they think, before more begin to follow Jesus and put their positions as religious leaders in jeopardy. And so Jesus knows the time has come. Notice verse number 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knows it's time, so he gathers them together. But he gathers them together because he loves them. And in the next little while, he will begin to tell them things out of the abundance of his love for them. Now, it's interesting that at the start of this war council, he doesn't begin with a recapitulation of all the events that have led up to this point. He doesn't give some grand, fired-up speech. He's not like a coach in the locker room before a game, and he fires up the charges to go out to the battle that is ahead. He does not do that. He doesn't exercise grand authority and bestow upon them titles and ranks. No. He begins this war council by washing feet. Notice with me verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Beloved, don't miss the humiliation of what Jesus is doing. This is a task that in Israel would have normally been performed by a Gentile. It certainly isn't going to be performed by a miracle-working, dead-raising prophet. I want you to think of it in a little different terms. Can you imagine... Can you imagine the one who created the dirt getting down and washing it off of these disciples' feet? There is much humiliation in what Jesus is doing. But he is showing profound humility. It becomes necessary for him to show for this humility. But, but of course, as is so often the case when we come into these scenes with Jesus, there is always one who has a problem with it. His name is Peter. But Jesus instructs Peter that the crown of victory can only be obtained through this model of the humble servant. Notice verses 6 through 8. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus said, 
you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. John, Peter says, I'm going to wash your feet or you're not going to enter into the kingdom. Now, Peter, he, he, all he's consumed about is the, is the kingdom. He wants to see the, the manifestation of the kingdom. And so he has this and, and, and he treats it, though, like an insurance policy. So in verse number 9, he says back to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Lord, if, if washing me is what's going to take to, to get me into the kingdom, Lord, just don't worry about my feet. There's a lot more of me that's dirty. I want you to wash everything because I don't want to miss this but Jesus says to him Peter I need to wash you in a different understanding I need to bathe you into a different understanding of what's going on here in verse 10 it says Jesus said to him the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean and you are clean but not every one of you Jesus says you are clean but you need to know that to go out and fight, it requires this model of servanthood. It requires this model of servanthood. In verse 12, he says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus says, if you're going to come into the kingdom, you've got to be a servant. And you've got to understand that you're no better than your master. You've got to understand that you too must kneel down and be humble and you must wash your feet. You must serve. So, beloved, the question for us this morning is do we serve as Jesus served? Do we serve as Jesus served? You know, when I see Jesus serving throughout the scriptures, Jesus doesn't uh, have qualifiers on whom he serves. He serves everybody. We know, we know, I don't want to skip ahead too far. I don't want to mess up the ending of the sermon. But we know that Jesus has already washed the feet of an awful bad dude here. And he didn't say, well, I'm not going to wash your feet because you're about to betray me. He washed his feet too. I'm sure he fed someone on the hillside that day that had brought food with them too. I'm sure that Jesus did multiple things for multiple people who didn't deserve it. And you know why I know that? Because Jesus saved me and I didn't deserve it. And the question is, do we serve with such reckless abandon? Or do we put qualifiers on whom we serve? Do we say, well, if you have meet this criteria, I, I will serve you. But if you don't, no, it's, it's not going to happen. Or maybe I should go a little bit 
further this morning. Maybe I, I should ask the question a little different. Do we serve, because we would all say that we serve, but, but do we serve in expectation of something back? Like, I'm going to do this, and later on it'll come back to me. I, I'm going to scratch your back, and later on my back's going to need to be scratched. Is that why we do it? Maybe we do it for something else. Maybe we serve because we want everybody to know that we serve and we want everybody to see that we serve. Or do we serve, beloved, simply because we love Jesus? It is helpful for us to remember the admonition of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, because of what he has done for me that is so great, he controls, his love controls what I do. Another translation says his love compels what I do. Because I have such overwhelming love for him, I don't care if I ever get credit. I don't care if my back goes unscratched for all eternity I will serve him do we do that do we do that for those of you who are married this morning you do things like that all the time don't you don't you I confess I'm not nearly as good as this as I used to be but when we were first married, on those cold winter mornings, I'd get up, Eliza would be getting ready, and I'd go out and I'd put on my coat and I had my Santa Claus pajamas on. And I'd crank her car and I'd warm it up. I'd tune the radio to the station she wanted. I'd get it just right. And when she come out, she would start her day happy. And I never asked for a thing back in return. Why? Because I loved her. So now here's another question for you this morning, beloved. You know, I won't say that my love for Eliza has grown cold. It's just I've grown old. And so I don't normally go out anymore and crank. In fact, I, one of the things I wanted on our last car that we just bought was a remote start. So I could just lay in the bed and go. <laughs> we didn't get it, by the way. Has your love for God grown old? So that you don't serve him like you used to. You don't serve him with the fervent intensity that you used to serve him. Oh, beloved, his love for us never dies. His love for us never steals. His love for us always goes on. And because his love for us is never ending, our love for him should be as well. And our service for him should be without qualification. 
or lack of passion. Now, I should take a moment and say that while we look at this table and we see all this love being shown forth around it, there's a problem. There's a problem at this table. The problem is masked very well. You remember this is a war council and, and this problem is, is, is under deep camouflage because there is an anti-servant at the table. His name is Judas. If we were to look at verse 26, some scholars believe that while John may be in, on Jesus' right, Judas is equally in a position of honor because the act that Jesus does when he hands him the bread is so close that it doesn't seem like there's movement. It doesn't seem like Jesus is getting up from the table. John is laying on Jesus' breast, it says, and he just, Jesus just sort of turns after John asks him the question of, of, Lord, who is it? And he offers the morsel. To Judas. That puts this whole thing into a whole different matter. Here is Judas at the position of honor, and yet he is the anti servant. Why? Because if true servanthood is exemplified by humility, the anti servant is full of pride. Notice with me, verse 18. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a reference back to Psalm 41, 9. And we don't think much about that, but in that society of that day, and even now in the Near East, if you show the bottom of your foot to someone, that is a sign of contempt. When you see people uh, back in uh, the, the fall of Baghdad and they tore down um, Saddam Hussein's statue, people took their shoes off and with the heel of their shoe they beat on the statue. It was a sign of contempt. And Jesus is saying here, Judas is about to take this bread and it's just like he's just thumbed his nose at me. He's showing me contempt. Beloved, anytime our service is full of pride and not humility, we're thumbing our nose at Jesus. The anti-servant, though, goes further. The anti-servant rejects love rather than receives it. You know, we read verse 2 of John 13 during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We think of it as some fait accompli, that this is a definitive action that Judas is going to betray. One theologian has said this, he said, the heart that is inspired by the devil wills what the devil wills. And certainly we think that it is... It is done deal but simply put that verse verse 2 says that the devil has simply put the thought into his head it's, it's not a done deal and Jesus goes so far as to prove that in verse number 26 again 
Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Leslie Newbigin says that this is the final act of love. To receive even a morsel from the host of a meal was a place of great honor. And Judas is now in this moment in time where he can take it or he doesn't. Judas can somehow at this point be filled with love, receive it from the, from the son and not take it, not take the morsel. He can say, no, 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 Lord, I, I, I'm going to serve you. He, he, he can say, because it is considered a, a place of honor to be given even a morsel from the host of a meal, he can say, Lord, I am, I am not worthy to receive this gift that you are giving to me. For there is no humility here. There is no love. Judas takes it. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. It is now that Satan enters in. It is now that Judas has made his decision of which master he is going to follow. That Judas's world becomes unraveled. Beloved, understand something this morning. We will always serve someone. It is the human nature to serve someone. We, we are designed to worship. And we're either going to worship God through service or we're going to worship whatever other idol we put in God's place. And the question is, which will we choose? Which will we choose? You know, there are some passages of Scripture that when I read them, they just arrest me. Verse 30 is one of them. So after receiving the morsel of bread... He immediately went out, and it was night. You know, sometimes we don't serve because we think that we won't be seen. We think that we'll be serving in the shadows. But, beloved, understand something. If you have the right master, even when you are serving in obscurity, it is not the case that you are in the dark. When we serve in the manner of true servanthood, we are bathed in the light of God's love. True servanthood is not to be reserved for a handful, the ordained. But if we are ever to drive darkness from around us, we must take up the mantle of servanthood and run into the darkness knowing that the light of God goes with us such that never in our service it can be said as of Judas's here 
and it was night. So, the question is this morning, beloved, <coughs> excuse me, how low can you go? How low can you go? Can you say, Lord, I love you so much that I'm going to go to the, to the furthest extent down I have to, to serve you. And I don't care if anyone else ever sees it. I'm just going to follow you. Because I love you that much. Can you serve in that way? Sometimes in difficult times, guided only by the light of his love? Or will you choose today to serve in the dark? When you serve in the dark, beloved, you need to rethink who you're serving. Because again, even in serving in obscurity, the light of God is there. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the fact that you offer us each day just like you offered Judas and Peter the chance to choose to serve you. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to serve you mightily. To show your love and your grace. To humble ourselves, Lord. And say no task is too small. No place of service is too obscure to keep me from serving you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Where is God speaking to you today? Has he showed you a place in your life where he is not the one that you serve? Has he spoken to you about a place in your life that you need to begin to serve him? Where you have lost your intensity of service, where you have lost the compulsion of his love. Maybe it is today that he's spoken to you about your relationship with him and you say, my relationship with him is non-existent because I don't have one and I want to have one. I want to know that all-compelling love. Maybe it's another matter. I, I don't know. But I know this, whatever God's spoken to you, he'll answer. And so today I pray that you would respond to his call to you as we stand to sing. Would you come?